Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, where we are reading through the Bible in a year. This is week 51. We are almost done. We have one more week left after this. How are you guys feeling? I'm feeling great. I The finish line is in sight. I'm kind of envisioning myself as like a runner at the end of the race where like something horrible happens to their leg and somebody's just carrying them across and they're not doing anything. That's kind of me right now. I got one arm around each of you and you guys are just dragging me across the line. Feels good though. Feels good. So how was the Bible this week, guys? Well, at least for the Old Testament, we had five different books to get through, which sounds like a lot, but they're but so much even shorter. if you add them all together, they're shorter than like half of Jeremiah. Oh man, Jeremiah. That's just cruel. Nothing against old Jerry, but uh, that him and Isaiah, they were the one-two punch that took me out. So The major prophets? Like yeah. The major? Is it because their books are so big? Probably. Well, we're back in the minor prophets. We start with Joel. Joel. Joel is mostly a depressing book, but it gets better. AJ, talk to me about Joel and the way that its fulfillment is spoken of in the New Testament. Joel, actually most of these seemed like they were kind of depressing. Judgment, judgy books, message from God. But then there's always a ray of hope or even some of the multiple chapters even of, of, you know, if you repent, God will, God will relent and will, you know, has, has a future for, for his people. But yeah, Joel had some crazy stuff with locusts and was it just two visions that he had or was it four? Yeah. And it kind of of seems, it kind of seems sometimes like he's just talking about December in Minnesota when, for instance, he says, indeed, human joy has dried up Mm. in Joel one twelve. Yeah. It's been a rough couple days. It's been so overcast and cloudy. It's been kind of sad. Do you need one of those mood lights in, in your office? I think so. Yeah. Is that on your Christmas list? No, hmm. but it should be. Um, yeah, so we get into Joel. There are um, a lot of correspondences between the language in Joel and our reading in Revelation today. I don't know if you picked up on some of those. Mm -hmm. But then also, of course, what comes to mind is Peter's sermon in the book of Acts, where he says, this has been fulfilled, is the Holy Spirit is poured out. So his Pentecost sermon, are you familiar with that? So I think in Acts 2, you know, we could do some in-studio Bible study here. In Acts 2, Luke uh, records Peter's sermon, and he cites this text in Joel. So when everyone says that the 12 disciples are drunk at this day of Pentecost, Peter tells them, no, you guys are wrong. In fact, what's happening right now is that which was spoken through the prophet Joel, verse 16, where the spirit of the Lord is poured out on all the people. So there's a lot of debate in theological circles about how fulfillment works in this text and and all the rest, but it's pretty clear at least that um, elements of Joel's prophecy have been fulfilled in the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church. Okay. My study note says that Joel predicted a wider exercise of the gifts of prophecy, including visions and dreams by young and old. 
Is that part of the debated thing that you were just mentioning? Yeah, I mean, there's it's more it more has to do with the dispensational circles. You know, is this a fulfillment to Israel or to the church, and how does all that work? Now, as we continue, of course, there are all of these negative things described correlated with the day of the Lord. And in Joel 2.11, there's the question, you know, the statement, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? That's the same question that appears in Romans 6.17, you know, on the day of the Lord, who can stand? So we'll, we'll talk about that more. But as a response to that, Joel answers the question by calling people to repentance. So who can endure the day of the Lord? People who repent. We see another minor prophet use the day of the Lord as well. It's Amos, right? Yeah. Is Amos yeah, I, one of the earlier written minor prophets? I think so. I don't, if I, I remember my very light research reading on this. <laughs> I th- Your Bible project video? <laughs> yeah. Hey, I stand by those videos. Yeah, no, hey, I think that's really good. But my point is that... Um, it seems like the Lord decides not to pour out this judgment on his people because they repent, hmm. which raises a question for me. With all of the gnarly things that we see in Revelation, will the Lord churn aside and avert those disasters if people repent? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Wait, I have a question. Do we have a situation of a bad translation? The ES, well, the CSB for verse 11, like you said, indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? The ESV says, where is it? For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? That sounds very positive, and the other one sounds very negative. I think awe, as in like fear, you know, fear and awe came upon them. It was an awful situation. I think it has a negative connotation. Mm. I don't think the average reader would pick up on that. It just sounds like it's great. In in the ESV. Yeah. yeah. What is the question after that? Or what is the statement after that? Who can endure it? So maybe if they pair it with that question, they might it might make them at least question the I would be os- confused. Uh, sure. Yeah. I'd the, be like what the question makes it clear that those are negative words, not positive words. So Mm. when you go to the state fair, you don't say, man, this food is so great and awesome. Who can endure it? You know, I do. I would just be confused. (laughs) I can't endure any of that food. Yeah. Because and those are negative words then for you. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Context is king. It makes clear how we should interpret these texts. Mm. What's your favorite food at the state fair? That is a tough one. Mm. I had some apple cinnamon ice cream or apple pie ice cream there one year. That was pretty good. Nice. Had an apple pie and vanilla ice cream with caramel. Great combo. I mean, not for you, but. Not for me. I usually have some type of like sausage and onion hoagie or something like that. That sounds safe. Yeah, it's safe. I mean, as long as they don't cook it in butter. What about you, Matthew? You're a big state fair guy. (laughs) Well, yeah, over the years, my diet has uh, kind of like AJ. I've got restrictions. Yeah, I used to be big into the what was it like the blooming onion thing? Yeah, that was good. Okay, that sounds good. It was large. You could walk around with it. But anymore, 
Let's go for the meat. Do you get that big turkey leg and yeah. walk around like a Viking? Yeah. Because it's, awesome. I just look for basically just straight up meat. But uh, this last year, I think it was this last year, it doesn't matter. Some year recently, they had a, um, a gluten free uh, trailer that had gluten free corn dogs. Delicious. Mm-hmm. I love corn dogs. How inclusive of them. Yeah. I, I think they were doing very well because they also advertised like gluten-free funnel cake, but they were like out of product. So I think what would sound more biblical is that the fields are destroyed, the land grieves, the grain is destroyed, new wine is dried up, and the fresh oil fails. Mm. That would be like a devastating word of judgment on the state fair that because there would be nothing left. All of the food would be gone. That would be rough. What else did you want to talk about in Joel there? I mean, I think there are some some interesting things that I could draw attention to, but I'd I'd be interested in what you guys thought. So the locust, is it explicitly stated that it's Babylon? Or is it mentioned somewhere else? Because it seemed like the things that I was reading, it, everybody was pretty confident that the locusts were were Babylon. And I just didn't I didn't recall as I was reading through where that came from. Yeah, I would imagine that works well because that's what Babylon did, right? They came in, they destroyed everything, and um, then God destroys Babylon. Sure. And in Joel 2.25, says, I'll repay you for the years that the swarming locusts ate, the young locusts, the destroying locusts, and the devouring locusts, my great army that I sent against you. I think these locusts are just the different nations that have come against Israel. We can understand that some of these images are not necessarily a literal thing, you know. So just because locusts are used here to identify the agent of God's judgment doesn't mean that it's an actual insect, you know, that's coming through. It might refer to people or an army or some other thing. And it could also actually refer to locusts in some instances. So we just have to recognize that there are word pictures on display here. Just something that would destroy the food and the wine and the prosperity of the yeah, which would be Babylon and all its armies who exactly. carried everything off. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And then, of course, when uh, the book progresses, there are judgments on all of the nations. So it really does fit in well with everything we've seen in other prophetic books to identify uh, these locusts in association with these nations that have risen up against Israel. And some of these minor prophets, except for Jonah, are really blending together. Because I really do think it's just very similar, just judgment messages against either, uh, you know, God's people or the nations. And then there's a message of hope. Well, yeah. And even in Jonah, that's the case. It's just, um, you know, Yeah, Jonah's that one's more narratival, biographical. Right. But the rest of them, even in the way they talk about judgment and restoration, use really similar language. Right. So like at the end of Joel, it says, In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Well, that's picked up again in one of the other minor prophets that I don't remember which one because they all kind of blend together. I mean, I think a notable thing as we get into Amos is that refrain over and over where there are punishments inflicted, yet you did not return to me. So God used all of these hardships for the purpose of drawing Israel back to himself. And again, as we get into Revelation, as we look at some of these pictures, that's the intention for these seven churches to repent where they've been called to repent and to return 
and to escape coming judgment on the day of the Lord. Significantly in Amos 5, um, there's this woe that's proclaimed, 518, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be like for you? It's going to be bad. So there are these Israelites who are saying, we can't wait for the day of the Lord to come because we're on God's side. And Amos is making clear, God is not on your side. And even if you offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, God won't accept them. Instead, what he wants is for justice to flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. And and I think when we get to Revelation, you have these seven churches who are hearing about all this judgment on the wicked at the day of the Lord. And that's what those letters are doing to them. It's saying, hey, you want the day of the Lord to come, but what will that day be like for you? Well, unless you repent, it's going to be bad. Right. So I think we need to read Revelation in the same way that we read some of these prophets. And pairing them together is actually a helpful intertextual exercise. Hmm. It's kind of interesting that some of these messages that were being delivered to the people still shows God's long-suffering and you know his patience because you know, we were just talking about Babylon and they don't really come. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really come for another 150 years or a little bit more maybe. So it still seems like plenty of time for generations to listen to God's word. And yeah, even though we know they don't. Yeah. And that's the same situation we might be in, right? Mm -hmm. Where we've had 2000 years to keep listening. Yeah. But then of course there's this ending with the restoration here at the end of Amos. And once again, there's that line, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. I think that's why that drew my attention to it, because it, it appeared like right next to each other um, in Joel and then Amos. Anything from Obadiah you want to talk about? This one is really short. I mean, we could say it's just more of the same, but that probably um, is not very respectful of Obadiah's unique contribution to the canon. Mm-hmm. I just don't know that I could say what it is. Obadiah's name means servant of the Lord. Yeah. O- Obed. Obed. Eved is the, is the Hebrew word. And then Ayah, Yahweh, you know, Obadiah, servant of the Lord. So, of course, the name of Ruth and Boaz's son is right. Obed, yep. servant, right? And then he's will he be a servant of the Lord or not? Well, with that genealogy that's given... We, we see the that he's a servant that, in a sense, starts the next generation on the way to the true servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Mm. Eat, Edom gets destroyed by Obi. It's not, not looking good for them. Which brings us to the book of Jonah. One thing that was, it kind of struck me this time when I was reading Jonah, it's just so immediate that Jonah, or in the text at least, it's like the Lord gave this message to Jonah. And then the next verse is Jonah got up and went the opposite direction, like immediately. And I just don't remember it being, I I don't, I, I guess I thought there was a little bit more context to him being like not wanting to go to Nineveh or something else, but it was just like God's message to go preach judgment. And then Jonah's like, nope, going the other way. And I just don't remember it being that stark. Yeah. Well, you were probably feeling in all the gaffes from, our fellow pastor Josh Huber's sermon series on the book of Jonah, or perhaps even the podcast episode that we did with Joshua, episode 49 on the book of Jonah. That must have been it. 
the great book of Jonah. With it's, a great fish. It's an odd book. What's odd about it? Dude gets swallowed by a fish. Yeah, the weather, God makes the weather bad because of him. Then he gets chucked out. Then a fish swallows him. He survives for three days. I don't know. And then he still gets I don't, super that, pissed about like a plant at the end of yeah, the Yeah, th- and that's what's weird is how it ends. He was just like mad about a plant that shrivels up. Oh, yeah. Well, and so I just was saying how stark the book starts. The The end of the book kind of ends like that too. You know, he's explaining it. God's explaining to Jonah. It's like, you feel sorry about the plant, but, you know, I, there's 100,000 people here that need to hear this message. You know, shouldn't I feel sorry for them? That's the end. Just this rhetorical question. Right. Yeah, it ends really oddly. Yeah, it's kind of like, I think we may have said this before, but, you know, there's uh, some of these endings of, of the books, whether it's Esther or Jonah or whatever, where you kind of need to fill in the gap about, like, how you think it ended and what we take from that. Do we know who wrote Jonah? Did he write it? I feel like he probably didn't, or did he? The book of Jonah does not identify its author. The title derives from the name of the main character. Jonah may have written the book, though whether he wrote it or not does not affect its integrity in Scripture. If someone other than Jonah wrote the book, it was probably a prophetic associate of his. One of his other prophet friends was like, Hey, Jonah, I can't believe you're just complaining about that tree and that whole time you apparently got it swallowed by a whale. I'm going to record that. Let's put that in the Bible. It was a minor, minor prophet. Yeah. His assistant. Maybe it was Amos or somebody. Like maybe it was. So. I don't know what the contemporary. Is it is it a fish or a whale? Probably a whale. But people get really uppity about, well, whale's not really a fish. It's a mammal. Right. Because so, it, like what's the translation? Because it think, says great fish usually. Yeah. I don't think Jonah cared about that. He was. I think whale makes the most sense. But I'm not a marine biologist so you're not a jonah truther that's right it was a whale not a fish wait uh i'm gonna google it did jonah good we'll find out the answer on google followed by a fish or whale so it's chapter two verse one in hebrew Oh. Um, uh, dog Gadol, a great fish. My hot take is that it's a unique fish that was some mutant fish that God created specifically for this purpose. Oh, that could be. Yep, a one-off. Yeah. Also, there could have been giant fish species living back then that have since gone extinct. Yeah, we already talked about how Jonah had a bad attitude at the end, and then the book yeah. just ends with this rhetorical question. And then we decided that, like, one of Jonah's, like, minor, minor prophet friends wrote the book down. Yeah. Now, of course, the minor prophet Nahum will talk about the destruction of Nineveh generations later. Really? I believe so. So, wait, they repented, but then kind of went bad again later? Generations later, yeah. Uh, Well, that happens. Nineveh is conquered by Babylon in 612 BC. Yeah, the pronouncement concerning Nineveh. 
Um, the Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him, but he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. And he will chase his enemies into darkness. So that was anywhere from like three to 20 years before it happened, Nahum. Yeah, I think so. So one of the first creative writing pieces I ever did was in high school. I wrote a story about Jonah's great-great-grandson named Nahum, who received a word from the Lord, and he went directly to Nineveh. Wow. Anyway, he's kind of rewriting the past to bring a redemptive arc in that family line, even as the Nineveh family line took a dark turn. Hmm. I thought it was an interesting thing to, you know, a little creative biblical fiction. Yep, so God's not happy with Nineveh and Nahum. Wait, we're not there yet in our reading. No, we aren't. I just was commenting on it because of the connection between, um, you know, judgment and salvation with Nineveh. Let's talk about Micah, which is the book right before Nahum and the last book in our Old Testament reading. Micah, one of the naked prophets. Yeah, what's the deal? Barefoot, naked, walking around. Howling like the jackals, warning like like the ostriches. Oh, yours says ostrich? Mine said owl. Or eagle owls. Moaning like an owl, and I was like, shouldn't it be hooting? Or mourning like the daughters of the desert. I don't know what that is, but... I think it's a reference to these birds. Judgment again and restoration again. A lot more like positive stuff in Micah about the future rain and... Well, yeah, and there's some clear instruction for what the Lord expects out of his people. There's depiction of uh, God as the shepherd of the people, um, his appointed shepherd who will shepherd them in the strength of the Lord. Obviously, the most popular or well-known verse uh, of Micah is probably Micah 6, 8. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love, and and I think it's it should be to love, steadfast love, and to walk humbly with your God. Hmm. I mean, it could be to love faith, covenant faithfulness. That that works. It's but it, all of those are better than to love mercy. You know, the translation to love mercy is dealing with the Greek translation where hesed is rendered as elias. And then in the New Testament, wrongly, I think, throughout, elias is always translated as mercy. But there are situations in a covenant setting when it should be translated as covenant faithfulness or as steadfast love or something of that nature. So the CSB actually does a decent job here. The ESV, the King James, NLT apparently. NLT does not. It it says to love mercy, but in the footnote, it, or in the study note actually, it says Hebrew kased. This passionate, undeserved loyalty is the defining quality in God's holy character. Yeah, that's why covenant loyalty or faithfulness or steadfast love. It's weird that it tells you that there, but wouldn't. Well, it's a translator's, it's not a translator's notes, it's a commentator's notes. So it's someone who's contracted, yeah, they're contracted to write study Bible notes for that translation, and they're trying to, in a non-controversial way, point out that it's probably a poor translation there. And these guys are usually it's on they're not doing the whole Bible. Like it's just that book yeah. they're expert on. So yeah, the study notes are actually Yeah, these people are this looking guy knows at what he's doing. the or majority girl. of the commentaries. Yeah, it could be a man or a woman. And um and not just because it's the NLT. I think I wonder if the ESV study Bible has female contributors. I think so, but probably 
like Karen stereotypically Jobes. to Esther and Ruth or something. But oh, Karen sure. Jobes may have done first through third John or Esther. Either you know, either. she's an Esther scholar, actually. Thank you for joining. Whoa, the whoa, 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 whoa. As we wrap up the book of Micah, we have a really great biblical imagery of all of the nations who stand against God, licking the dust like a snake, um, becoming like reptiles slithering on the ground. They they are clearly the offspring of the serpent. And uh, the biblical prophets draw on that language here. But then there is an ode to God, who is a God like you, who forgives, who pass over, passes over rebellion, uh, doesn't hold anger forever, but delights in faithful love. This God will show compassion and vanquish his enemies. Oh, vanquish our iniquities, not our enemies. That's an interesting picture. That's kind of the Christus Victor picture. Mm. And then again, you will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our ancestors from days long ago. So I'm really interested, Aaron, to hear more about Revelation because some of the stuff that you were even commenting on in the Old Testament section, you know, about how that relates to, I think part of it does affect like, or it, you know, it depends on how you are reading Revelation too. So I, I'm interested to hear, um, you know, what your thoughts are for the reading for this week. Yeah, I'm happy to share it. And I should probably preface this by saying that not everybody agrees on how to interpret Revelation. That's probably pretty obvious. And I'm not suggesting that there are no ways my interpretation could be improved or something like that. Um, But you have to kind of land on something and try to read the book intelligibly. And this is the way that it makes the best sense to me. Um, even though it's kind of hard to hear the first time through, because if you've only read Revelation in one particular way, you might be disinclined to try to look at it a little bit differently. But I think you just have to suspend disbelief in what I'm about to say, and I think it will make more sense of the book. Is that enough of a preface? Absolutely. All right. So if you remember... Everything is taking place from the throne room of heaven. That's the vantage point for what's going on. Right. Okay. And I think one of the ways that we should read Revelation is simply to say virtually everything described here is what takes place between Christ's ascension and his return and the completion of the new heaven and new earth. And what I'm going to argue is that we get repeated scenes from different angles um, so if you've ever watched that movie Vantage Point, where they keep playing the same set of events, but from a different vantage point, that that's the whole construct for the movie. Um, Is that kind of like the prologue to the Stormlight Archive, where you get the prologue from different people, characters, vantage points? Sure. Yeah. Love it. Um And I think that's what's going on here, is we have these sets of seals and trumpets and bowls. There are the same events from a different vantage point. And there will be a clue that one has ended and it's restarted. I'll, I'll point that out in a moment. But John is getting these visions from the viewpoint of being at the throne room in heaven. 
So are there different uh, reasons why we would have the same thing repeated? Is it an emphasis thing? Are we taking different things from these different viewpoints? I think it's a little bit of an emphasis thing that it all adds to put together a full picture. So maybe a way of talking about it would be using a musical analogy where you have a left speaker and a right speaker and they're playing the same song, but they're each contributing different pieces for one holistic rhythm mm. or, or sound. And if you isolate it and listen to just the one without bringing the others in to allow them to play, it's going to sound off. But you can train your ear to appreciate something that sounds off, and that's a problem. We need to hear the whole thing. And it takes a little bit of training to be able to um, adapt to that if you haven't heard it all in concert before. Um, so I think that's that's what's going on. And as you go, you have to remember that John is seeing visions, and he'll see one vision and then another vis- a vision. And it, he's not giving a chronology of end times. He's giving a progression of the visions. And we can't say that each vision is a next section of human history. Even as we've seen in Old Testament prophecy, these things are not in chronological order. And it would be a mistake to say that whenever you come across John saying, and next I saw, that he's talking about some another event in the future human history. It's just saying, this is the next vision that I saw. And it speaks not at all to chronology of human history or events. Okay. So that's another big piece to keep in mind. Now... As we progress, we read some of the seals last week. So remember, there's this big scroll, and there are seven seals, and these seals all get released. And between six and seven, there's kind of this little gap with an explanatory note, and and that's chapter seven. I'll come back to this. And then it ends with um, this peeling of the bells that signals okay, this vantage point is over. Now we're going to look at the same things from a different vantage point. So it's kind of like when you're watching A Christmas Carol, you know, this Charles Dickens movie, and one ghost ends and the bells ring, and then that's signaling, okay, now the, a different ghost is going to come. Well, in So in, do we have another interlude after this then to signal the same Yeah, Yeah, so you, you have the seals, you have the trumpets, and the bowls. And these are all just saying the same thing from different angles. And interludes in between. And in each one between six and seven, there's an interlude. But at the end of each one, there's a line about peeling of the bells. So in in chapter eight, verse five, um, there these uh, peals of thunder, flashes of lightning. In chapter 11, verse 19, so after um, you get the trumpets, you get... Another instance where there are flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, earthquake. And then again, in chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 18, after the bowls, you have this same thing. Flashes of lightning, rumble, peals of thunder. So what this is indicating is that they're just, the seventh of each one is describing the same thing. It's just describing them from different vantage points. So if you can hear it in that way. It's not a future timeline progressing through, you know, seven events, and now the next set of seven starts. It's the same progression, just from a 
a different angle. Um, and, and what I want to say is that number one through six of all of these things, whether it's the seals or the bowls or the trumpets, that's life between the ascension of Christ um, and then nearing his return. And then seven is the day of the Lord that comes. Um, and, and I want to say that this is the experience of every Christian. So one through six on all of them, this is the experience of Christians throughout time in different places. It's not a future progression of events. That's helpful as we start to read through this, but still interpreting some of this, what's told here in these visions is still pretty crazy. Like I'm still trying to figure out like what, yeah. What is John seeing here? Like, so what are so we let me help you out here. Yeah. When we were reading Joel, we're hearing of some of these uh, warnings of destruction to come on Israel as motivation for them to repent. We have the same thing going on here to the seven churches urging them to repent and obey, to obey the letters. Right. right. And a lot of the imagery is drawing on things like the plagues. You know, so especially when we get to the trumpets, all of these things are drawing on imagery from the the ten plagues. Uh, so when all of these hardships, we could say, are ordained by God for the purpose of drawing people to Him in repentance, that makes in, sense. In the way we respond, the way we obey, is by repenting. You know, and this this comes out especially clearly when. After the sixth trumpet, and remember, the sixth is like right before there's a break, and then the day of the Lord comes. Well, here, God has poured out all of the judgment possible, every every disciplinary act that he can to draw people back to himself. And here's the problem. People still did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorcerers, sorceries, their sexual immoralities, or their thefts. Those are the things in the letters that these churches are called to repent of. So you know the purpose for all of this is to say, hey, church, whenever hardship comes, you should interpret that as a disciplining hand of God to draw you to himself in repentance. Okay. That seems to be an encouragement as we're trying to read through this book, especially if we're not familiar with it. I think that puts a lot of it into uh, perspective. Yeah, and this apocalyptic imagery can be a little bit wonky, but you just have to remember that apocalyptic literature reveals the cosmic spiritual realities that are underpinning the normal experience of life. Like the woman birthing the baby and the dragon steals the baby and the woman flees. And like, well, I, in, I just get kind of lost there. Well, in this interpolation, I'll, I'll call it. Love it. It's, it's a breaking up of. Is that in the, one of the. Uh, uh, well, it's, it's a, it's a breaking up of this story between the trumpets and the bold judgments, okay. right? So it's like this interlude is probably a better term. And where the rest of them sort of start at the ascension of Christ, this interlude talks about the birth of Christ. You know, this woman is Mary who gives birth and the dragon who's behind all rulers who stand against God. You know, horns represent ruling authority. Yep. Um, well, John is saying, hey, when Herod tried to kill Jesus, 
at his birth, that's like Satan working through human rulers to oppose God's ruler, his anointed king. But God kept Jesus and his mother safe. And there's like this weird conflation of Mary and the church to be, where they become one figure who find protection from God and um, blessing even as they're in the wilderness waiting for the destruction of the dragon. Um, and all who um, maintain faithfulness to God are identified with the woman and her offspring. That's the church. That's what these people, these people who receive the letters should be doing. They should be finding nourishment in God and awaiting his defeat of the dragon. Except John ate that scroll and he didn't feel nourished. He felt sick. Well, you know, and of course we had a, had a couple of allusions to Ezekiel in our text. Mm-hmm. One, remember in Ezekiel, these angels are told to go put a mark on God's people in Jerusalem oh, and then sure. kill everybody who doesn't have the mark. You know, another visionary experience thing. Um, here, the same thing happens. Who can stand on the day of the Lord? Those who are marked out as God's people. And they're marked out by faithfulness. Yeah. You know, so the mark of the beast is unfaithfulness to God. The mark of God's children is faithfulness to him and to Christ, even to the point of death. Well, that's one allusion to Ezekiel. And now there's another one here in chapter 10 where Ezekiel was told to eat the scroll and it tasted like honey to him. Well, now John eats the scroll. It tastes like honey, but it sits in his belly in a bitter way. Mm. And it's an indication of the way that these words are going to be received. I was just trying to figure out how, like, what is it, Tim Van Trimpey? How does he fit in here? Oh, he yeah. Start? Now, that's a reference to one of my favorite novellas called Re-Raptured, uh, written by committee. It's a great tale. If you're interested in it, you can borrow my copy. So you said you were going to come back to interlude. Did you already do that? Yeah, I think I referenced okay. them. There's usually yeah. a break between six and seven that anticipates the day of the Lord, and there's some level of explanation there. So, for example, um, for the, uh, the scrolls, you know, we have this break after six. At the end of six, there's a question, who can stand on the day of the Lord? Well, chapter seven, this interlude is the answer. All those who are marked out by God. Those are the people who can stand on the day of the Lord, which reminds us of that warning that we observed in the minor prophets where God's people, quote unquote, are saying, we want the day of the Lord to come, but because they haven't repented and because they aren't remaining faithful, they shouldn't be wanting that. They don't realize that they will be doomed for destruction. Well, John wants the churches to know if you want to stand at the day of the Lord, don't make sacrifices, right? Like the Old Testament says, instead, um, live righteously before God. I think that's good because we, it's good coming off of that famous, is it the verse in Micah where it was like, you were just talking about the translation. Oh yeah, Micah 6, 8. Yeah. Yeah, Do do justice, love, covenant faithfulness, steadfast love, and walk humbly with your God. Right. Yeah, and that's pretty much the calling here. Um, so I, yeah, I, w- I would want to say there's obviously more depth we could get into, but I think a lot of people are intimidated by the book of Revelation. But if you can read it in the way that I've just described, which is as an apocalyptic color commentary on the letter to the seven churches that shows 
the experience of all Christians from Christ's ascension leading up to the great day of the Lord, which is his return, the seventh one of all of these, then you can actually do what the book says. You can obey it by repenting, by interpreting the events of, of your life as God drawing you to himself in repentance so that you will be prepared to stand on the day of the Lord. Thanks, Aaron. So we've got these three different recapitulations of these events. And that takes us through what, chapter 18. How far does that take us? Well, it takes us um, through because the bold judgments all the way. continue on, right? All the way through chapter 18. I believe. And um, then we and then we do see a little bit of what is going to happen yeah. after Christ's return. Well, and right? then I think chapter 19. Not to get ahead of ourselves, I yeah, just wanted to kind of preview where we're going. Yeah, I think chapter 19 starts um, all over again. Not again. Yeah, so I think it's all over, recaptured, um, bringing in the day of the Lord, and then chapter 20 shows the progression of Christ's victory. And then chapter 21 is the future um, restoration. Okay. And there, of course, people can get wonky with this too, but you just have to pay attention to the imagery. So this new city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the sky onto earth, some people are like, man, that's like the temple being restored and there will be sacrifices in there and all of these things. And I want to say, no, that's not right. You have to keep reading. It's like a bride adorned for her husband. This is just symbolic imagery for God's people, you know, the bride of Christ coming down to earth um, to live on the new earth in the presence of God forever. So I do think as we get, I forget if it's in chapter 18 or 19, I didn't prepare that far in advance, but it is like everything restarts again. So we shouldn't think about how heaven and the new Jerusalem is really just with all of these different levels and to figure out how to find your home with golden elevators or something. No, I don't. So how do I you fit that many so. people into this into that city cube. with these dimensions? Yeah. The cube. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we need to worry about that. Instead, it's this um, pristine depiction of the Holy of Holies because God will now dwell with his people forever. Okay. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that in our last episode of the reading through the Bible in a year. And it's a great note to end on. You don't like D- Doug Wilson's When the Man Comes Around? I've never read it. He's got, I'm sure it's clever, though. Well, I, of course it's clever, and he always likes Johnny Cash. I was going to say, it's a Johnny Cash yep. song. I think a few of his books are Johnny Cash lyric titles. Well, he books. is very wordsmithy. Also a name of one of his books, yes. Yeah, I read that Good one job. in college, and it was really... I really... Liked it. I thought it was really helpful as I was thinking about how to craft words. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Now, some people say that's Jesus. I don't think it is. A horse? Yeah, the rider on the white horse. Yeah. I don't think it is. It's one of four. There's a man it's the first going one. Round I don't think taking it's names. And he Have you heard this, Aaron? Who to no. Free oh. And who to blame. If it's not in my grandmother's handbook, I haven't heard Everybody it. Everybody won't be treated all the Isn't same. Isn't that a Johnny Cash album? Oh. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down. 
Can you look it up and see? Oh, that sounds better. Is it? Grand My grandma's hymnal or something like that. Oh, my, my mother's, mother's hymnal. Thank up. you for joining us here on the Resurrection the Church Podcast. Our website is resurrectionmn.org. The end. We'll see you next time the on the Resurrection Church Podcast. When the man comes now around. we have to do our little talk. Like that's going to be a little bit. Hear the trumpets, like, so, hear the so, pipers. One thing that I forgot to say about Amos was 100 that million angels singing. He starts out saying, listen to me, you Multitudes yeah, you cows up the nation. So I think it's actually like, voices crying. Some are born and some are dying. I just love reading the NLT like that. Yeah. It's Alpha you know, and like, Omega's kingdom come. And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree. The virgins are all trimming their wicks. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard for thee to kick against the priest. There you go. You haven't had it that long. You haven't had it that long. No shalom. No shalom. Not long. I'm when getting a new one in February once they release new Samsung. It'll have been four years. The wise men will bow down that's before time. the throne. That's a long time in yeah. some, some life. And at his feet, they'll cast their golden crowns. Catchy? Is this going to make your rotation? Comes around. I don't think so. Whoever is unjust... Let him be unjust still. Whoever is righteous, let him be righteous still. Whoever is filthy, let him be filthy still. Listen to the words long written down. When the man comes around. Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers. One hundred million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices calling, voices crying. Some are born and some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree. The virgins are all trimming their wicks.